Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah McDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome, bookends, to our Rathbones Folio Prize 2023 special, where we are talking to the three winners of this year's prize. We'll be joined by Margot Jefferson, the winner of the Nonfiction Prize this year, Michelle de Kratzer, the winner of the Fiction Prize this year, and winner of the Poetry category, Victoria Aduque Boulet. We are so excited to speak to all three of this year's winners, and we hope you enjoy our conversations. First awarded in 2014, the Rathbones Folio Prize is open to all works of literature written in English and published in the UK. The prize is unique in that it is judged by members of the 300 plus strong Rathbones Folio Academy of esteemed writers and critics. This year's prize shortlist was arguably the strongest yet and we are so pleased to share this year's winners with you all. Margot Jefferson is an American writer, professor and critic. Margot was a theatre and book critic for Newsweek and the New York Times and won the 1995 Pulitzer Prize for criticism. Her writing has appeared in Vogue, New York Magazine and The New Republic, amongst other publications. Margot is the author of three books. Her memoir, Negro Land, received the National Book Critics Circle Award for autobiography in 2016. It also won the Bridge Prize, the Heartland Prize and was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize. Her most recent book, Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir, is a wildly imaginative interrogation of art, race, family, identity and gender and made her not only the 2023 Rathbones Folio Prize non-fiction winner but the overall winner for the prize too. Margot, it's an honour to be in your presence today. Welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Well, thank you. I am glad to be here. So, firstly, we are huge fans of the Rathbones Folio Prize and we followed it for many a year but what was it like for you to be nominated and ultimately win this esteemed accolade? Well, you know, the nomination was um, a, a total surprise and a delight, you know, <laughs> um, not least because I was, you know, in company, you know, among among writers that um, I really admired. So that always gives you a lift. It probably makes you, you know, more certain that you probably won't get it, but it <laughs> feel very good about about the company you keep you you're you're invited to keep so that was lovely um but i the the winning of nonfiction and then of the entire prize was um, stunning and and really quite overwhelming i must say and that it is a prize well a couple of things that um some prizes do pair nonfiction with fiction obviously poetry is always there but plenty don't so you know this was very very um moving to me that nonfiction was standing shoulder to shoulder with fiction and poetry and that writers um, whom I admire enormously made the decision that that too felt uh, exhilarating. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, humbling, but also empowered. <laughs> very, yeah. You're, you know, you're yes. very embarrassed. You're feeling empowered and humble. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Won so many awards. Does it ever get old? <laughs> Does it ever? I never won so many that it gets pulled. It's on my share of um, shortlist. Yes. <laughs> and like those people who sit in the audience when they don't get Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. And it is an honor. And it is an honor. 
<laughs> now, moving on to your book, Margot, I would love to start with your brilliant title, which I've already heard you receive many a compliment for on various interviews you've given. What does it mean to construct a nervous system? For me, it meant investigating and realigning, rearranging, recreating what I would call my, my sensibility. Um, for me, I don't mean nervous system you know, in the in the usual technical medical way. But I mean it as this collection of really a writer or an artist's tools, um, your sounds, sights, images, thoughts, and, you know, passions, um, which can include hatred for all kinds of cultural objects and subjects. Um, and that sense that instead of always being locked into, this is my take, um, the, this, this is my perspective. On, on this, on my life, um, on the emotions um, that I that I feel on this piece of material culture, to feel that you can, I mean, it's a little <laughs> very optimistic, but that you can continually reshape and reform um, your sensations, your thoughts, as we are always, as writers, trying to do with our words, with our language. I loved the the way in which it was written and it, it really threw me when you you reference Michaela Cole who we are huge fans of and there's, a, there's um there's an interview that Michaela Cole did with Louis Theroux and it really struck me the way in which she speaks it really reminded me I felt the way that you wrote the book was very similar to the way that she speaks in that she's always kind of allowing her thoughts to come and she's allowing them to sort of like you said reform and reshape um, and she's kind of not afraid for them to do that in real time, if that makes sense. Oh, it, um, it does. That's that's the way her, you know, her TV series work. Um, so that that delights me actually. Yeah, she's incredible. <laughs> she's incredible. We're just. <laughs> Could talk about Michaela Cole all day. <laughs> and what I found really great about this book as well, for our bookends, you might be like, what even is, what is this book? The format of the book has been described as, as deconstructed and unconventional in its style. You've kind of taken the concept of a, a memoir and kind of flipped it on its head. How did you go about choosing how you're going to style it or format it? And what effect do you hope it has on the reader? Yeah, um, I had very much felt, I started to say decided, but I really felt before I decided it, that I did not want um, the kind of traditional arc of, you know, the growing, <laughs> the growing psyche and soul. Yeah. And I had actually decided that when I wrote my, my previous book, Negro Land. But it did have some, um, and that made sense. It was, in certain ways, a more traditional memoir. So it did have some chronologies going. Um, but here, I really wanted, and that has to do, again, with my sense that the construction of, of this self, this writing self, and its parts, that was always in progress. So I wanted um, a much more sense of collage and of ways that certainly the reader could follow, you know, ways in which one subject linked to another. You know, I might say, oh, God, you know, I've just been so serious. I'm exhausted. <laughs> but they're <laughs> lighthearted. <laughs> so they, you know, they had their breadcrumbs, <laughs> like Hansel and Gretel. But I wanted to enjoy for myself, but also to encourage the reader 
to trust how their mind and emotions would jump, would associate, would jump back, would be do a close up, then pan out. Um, you know that. So that has its own order, its own sense of order. It's not it's not order versus disorder. It's um kind of simultaneity. <laughs> it's getting you know you get the rhythm, and then your own mind starts um you know to as the reader, your own mind starts to attune itself. But Absolutely. I wanted to stay alive and interested, and I really wanted to allow because often being a critic or, or a memoirist too, you you take a stand, you find you know some gestural um power, and you stick with it. Um, I really wanted to um, get at and examine and explore, um, you know, variety and change um, and looking back and, and feeling differently. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of a lot of what I thought the book represented was, was about like that concept of like looking back and the memories that we look at. Because I know that when I reflect on my life or reminisce, I do not do it in a linear fashion at all. And I do not, I don't reflect and go, oh, when I was three and then when I was four and then this happened. It, no. it is very... It might be when I was three, but... Uh... No, actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that isn't exactly the way it happened. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. That's right. And also, you can get at the same so-called facts of your life, um, you know, from different angles. One day it might be, you know, Ella Fitzgerald um, that sets you in motion. Another day it's in it's Little Women. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why well, I really wanted to um, to be fair to that to do justice to that. Yeah, I I did say to Lydia before we started this interview that I really felt like you'd had a lot of fun writing this. It it really felt like that, you know, it felt like an ongoing sort of conversation with the reader, but it also felt like a, an ongoing conversation with yourself. And it felt like at times you were conversing with yourself, at times it felt like you were arguing with yourself. And it, yes. But it, it felt very playful at times, even though there were darker things explored, but explored, but it was it was very playful in the way that you wrote it. And I really, really enjoyed that. <laughs> very glad to hear that. You know, what else was a huge factor? My, my love for quoting other writers. You know, drawing their words, um, altering their words, putting them in conversation with me. So, you know, that that also just, it uh, quickens your own sense of how you can change, how you can alter a tone. And I love that. I, you know, be, because it didn't have that um, usual um, arc of tension and leading to uh, <laughs> I wanted a lot of, a lot of alternative, but you know, polyphonic, let's say, um, ways of um, tones and notes and, and, and ways of creating excitement, then giving rest, um, mood shifts, you know, yeah. that can inhabit nearby spaces. Fonts, playing with fonts, which I did a lot, um, yeah. was it was helpful for me. I found myself instinctively doing it while I was writing, you know, the way you raise your voice or lower it, or, um, and it just helped me, helped remind me you're going in a lot of directions, but <laughs> that, was, that was fun to do. Yeah. I think so many times we feel constrained, don't we, by the kind of the rules of uh, <laughs> of writing. And literally be graphic rules, you know. Yeah. The paragraphs have to go in this order, this, or just, you know, nope, not a one sentence, not a one sentence line here, no. Just keep going. Yeah. So again, that sense of something that could be, even if it wasn't improvised literally, it could have that feeling. Yeah. yeah. And also it made me listen to my voice 
and voices more clearly. Uh, like safe directions, yeah. Do you think any of your students will be coming back to you after this and and be asking you what are these rules that you told us about? And <laughs> now you <laughs> now what I. I, I'm 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 careful and I'm artful in that I choose the uh, subjects, the forms that I teach. So I teach things like hybrid nonfiction forms and cultural memoir and um, you know criticism, which includes multiple, multiple, multiple things, or um, you know uh, personal and art and arts criticism. So I, I get to play now. That way with that. You know, you you adapt to what. The student is writing and wants to do, but um, I, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I think I'm, I think I'm well covered on that. On that, right? We'll see what they'll we'll see. <laughs> now, you were just talking about, uh, we just touched on memory, and um, one thing that I, I really loved about your book is the way that you uh, wrote about family. And um, I thought you wrote about your family in this really beautiful and evocative way, and I especially loved the way that you wrote about your sister Denise mm-hmm. and um, I'm a sucker for a, a story of sisters because I'm one of four so I found it <laughs> very moving. Do you do you feel that your that your love for the arts and, and culture was inspired by your family? It inculcated yeah um, yes I do um, you have to take it you know where you want it to be, but um, my both my parents were um, the consumers um, of the arts. My father, before medical school, had had a life that one part of him really wanted to follow as a musician. Um, you know, my mother just she loves literature, she loved music, but it was very much a part. And um, in that way, our being girls uh, worked to our advantage. It was very much a part of how we were raised. We each. Took started quite early. Um, piano lessons, ballet lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, the schools we were sent to were very involved. You know, you'd go to museums, whatever. And our parents would do that too. They would pay mother especially um, very close attention to what we were genuinely interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I was better. I was a better um, musician. Denise was the dancer. Um, and you know, at a certain point, when I think Denise was about nine or ten. Um, she said, you know, I want more serious ballet lessons. And my mother called a friend who had been a professional dancer, um, Frances Taylor, um, and she found the right teacher for Denise. The same thing happened to me with piano. So, you know, one got a sense very early that this was not just, you know, culturally pleasing and appropriate, but um, pleasurable, exciting. And something that as a woman, as a girl, as a woman, you really could take hold of. Um, it didn't impose the same barriers that said wanting to be a scientist did, you know, in that, in the, in those eras. Yeah. So, yes, I do think so. And, you know, this was just part of what we took pleasure in growing up. Yeah, you can, you really get a sense of that. And I, um, I loved the way that you, you linked your, your sister and, and yourself, uh, training in ballet and, um, the exploration of the body doing ballet and the link to yours and your sister's, um, love for the Olympic runners. Yes. The white, ba- the white ballet body, the Olympic runners, black body, Denise with her blonde body and me and, and our negotiating. Oh, yeah. I, those those worlds and trying to find spaces in them both 
work them to accommodate us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read that you said that you toyed with becoming an actor and, and, and following routes like this. But ultimately, you cho- chose to kind of invoke characters through writing instead and exploring voices through that instead. Yes. Um, and also to dialogue as a critic, to, you know, yes. some kind of dialogue um, with with writers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, Hannah and I, we're both actors, if we haven't mentioned it enough on the podcast. <laughs> Just, you know, once or twice. And so I kind of, I find it fascinating that you use writing to to explore character and people and the way that you look through the lens of others to sort of analyze yourself in a way as well. What is that like as a process? You know, you said, you since you brought up acting, I will say that one reason I think it mattered so much to me was, wasn't what I was good at as an actress. I I always had this, a certain flair, but it was this, you know, perpetual, it's Margot. I didn't have that ability to um, seemingly suppress these very individual um, traits and voices and find, you know, expression in another another character. Um, To examine that and explore that through writing, um, through your language, through the particular point of view you take, through structure, uh, that was maybe initially compensatory for me. Mm-hmm. And then it became it became fascinating. It also had to do with when I when I wrote my first memoir, I I realized well, more concretely than I had before. You know, if I'm being accurate about my cultural and personal history, it involved. Many persona. It involved a lot of as a um, upper middle class young black what black girl who became a black woman. You know, at these times in the United States where bigotry, racism, and all of that were going on, we that world I belonged to was constantly performing. You know, what is um, you know what what do we have to do to be recognized as equal, to be admired, to be um, treated fairly? Decently, um, even what do I need to do to audition for um, a celebrated white piano teacher who I think has not had you know, a black yeah. student before? Uh, but you know, what re- changes are required when I'm in an all-black party as an adolescent and then an all-black white party? There's some overlap, but there are stylistic differences. So, you know, I realized that this had a lot to do, this, this life of mine with social and psychological performances. And, you know, then I could take that further with constructive nervous system, you know, and, and really use it to engage um, more freely and more intimately with uh, all kinds of artists and sensations and feelings and responses. Absolutely. I feel like it's, I can't recommend this book enough for creative people. If you deem yourself as a creative person in whatever aspect that may be, I think it's just, it's one of the most pertinent books to read. It's very much a, a companion to, to your own thoughts in my mind. It's just, it's, it's lovely. It's I, that, that's terrific. Yeah. And touch on what Liddy's just said, like it's, it's 
also very accessible in terms of culture because me and Lydia have spoken before on the podcast that we're we're both from working class backgrounds and I know that the class system is different in the UK to what it might be in the US but but certainly here it feels like uh, the world of the arts and culture don't really want working class lower class people in it there's a lot of nepotism there's a lot of uh you need to have wealth you need to have you know money behind you and it's and I, I loved the way that you you explored class in the book especially with Ella Fitzgerald and her performance and the sweat when she performs and how it's visible and how that relates to working class laborers and um exactly and racialization as like a fixed trait is almost for a form of caste so class and, and caste um what are the ways that you feel that the class and culture sort of intersect in in the U.S.? So obviously, it's very different from from us in the U.S. Maybe you know, the U.S. is is bigger, yeah. perhaps. You know, those if you look, for example, at all the challenges to the kind of conventional literary canons, which of course you all know, true, um, they have so much to do with um, and then the insistence um, in terms of class variety, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, you know, those are real um, pushings and insistences that this somewhat monolithic upper middle class, um, almost entirely white, almost entirely male, traditional canon be opened up. And and with the, you know, the knowledge that, you know, you people, there are a lot of things you don't know that are worthwhile, you know, and now we, um, these various groups of people, we are able to um, to insist on that. I mean, it, it always has to do with um, accruing some real political power too, before you can, right? Before you can use um, cultural power. But uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, all of that is still there. It never, it never goes away. It configures itself. You have different um, ways of pushing against it, of opening up, you know, art forms and, but no, um, class prejudice will not disappear. It can, it can get subtler, but it not. <laughs> And I would put off. Yeah, definitely. Certainly. Absolutely. I, I was think I was saying to Hannah the other day, it's it's less of a in your face problem in the UK at the moment. It's uh, more insidious. Yeah. <laughs> What's the word I used? Yeah. Because and I think in yeah, and I think in the US it's it's uh, more insidious, but also maybe more suppressed. Yeah. yeah. And then it like the return of the repressed, then it pops up in all kinds of judgments, associations, um, et cetera, but you're often in the US, we're not calling it that. Yeah. Just a bit of, you know, comedy there for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> don't get us started on class. Don't. No, don't get us started. We're there all night. <laughs> no, it's to con but I have found, for example, teaching, but also in the large world, you can be in a setting where people are more comfortable talking about, let's say, gender discrimination than race or up. Sometimes you'll be in a group where race and ethnicity is easier than gender. Class is to really can be one of the naughtiest. It can really seem to be what people want least to examine, to confess. <laughs> etc so it's it's very interesting yeah, yeah i really like, don't want to confront it do they no it's a lot i think a lot of it's tied in with wealth as well in mm -hmm. the uk because class is so attributed to how much money people have or earn and i think as a as a nation we're very much tight lips 
uh, about how much money we earn. And I think that's very much like a, a no-no in a situation, in a conversation. Yeah, we've we've certainly seen the the links between class and and the arts in, and especially through me and Lydia trying to be become actors and we're working class it's it's there's a lot of barriers for us to overcome in order to try and get through those doors and I think exactly. and getting through the doors can often just mean I'm getting a chance to audition yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm getting a chance for you to have to pay a little little again but I think that's that. That's what was so great about your book is that you were you were bringing all these these barriers that people have to overcome. You were bringing those up, those all to the forefront and and shine the light on them. And, and you know, people can't kind of look away when they read your book. It's you know, here's the here's the ways in which there are barriers in terms of race. Here are the barriers in terms of gender. Here are the barriers in terms of class. And I think you just kind of lay it all out, and it's you can't look away from it. And that's. It, yeah, <laughs> but in a really great way. You know, I really enjoyed that you that you did that because, you know, a lot of people would be would be afraid to, and it's important that we speak about these things. It is, and it's also you know it, it it's crucial to I am who I am, and this this black woman who is um, upper middle class, but nevertheless, you know, um, overlaps with all sorts of class questions or is permeated by. That's when I, when I became a writer, you know, without bringing that up, you know, <laughs> I wrote or, and, you know, writing about a wide range of things. This was my material. This informed, you know, my judgments, my thoughts, my feelings. So whether it was overt or covert, um, you know, it, it was what I had to work with. Now, I am uh, very sad that I've noticed that we've um, almost hit time, but I, <laughs> I've had to pick your brain all day. But the, <laughs> the have many stories um, yes. about all manner of things. Yeah. <laughs> but there are there are so many uh, cultural icons that you you explore in the book. And I would just like to ask, uh, was there a particular one that you enjoyed writing about the most? Ah, enjoy. That's very tricky. In certain ways, I enjoyed um, writing, encountering the, the many Josephine Bakers yes. um, that existed. Um, that was probably the most fun. The Willa Cather was was grueling, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it involved so many um, conflicts and contradictions, etc. Um, Ike Turner made me quite self-conscious in certain ways, but it was nice to be, was fun to be, explore naughtiness. <laughs> you know? I am who I am, and I can also have the, these improper. Um, and Ella Fitzgerald was deeply, maybe the most moving to me. Baker was the most fun, but Fitzgerald was, was the most moving because I, I felt I was finding a way to discover her more fully than I had even after listening all these years and writing somewhat about her. Um, yeah. Yeah, you really opened my eyes up to Ella Fitzgerald and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. She's an incredible woman. And yeah. on, a, on Ike Turner, there is a quote that I just wanted to, to share. It's a very small one, but you said, his foul radiance haunts me still. I stole that from Robert Louis Stevenson. It's all in the notes it is from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, why? Yeah, right. cool. <laughs> had that had that source right there. On the probably page. did. You probably did. But no, no, it's in the back notes. But um, what I adopt someone discussing him says, you know, it, is he is he is he a particular special, you know, um, uncanny creature, or is it the mere radiance of the foul soul? I'm just oh, 
when I, I read them years ago and it totally came back to me when I decided mm. I'm not done with Ike Turner here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, great line. And I'm, this, yeah. is why, this is why I steal from writers. Yeah. I, so that's I, the beauty of it. That's definitely <laughs> wrong. As long as you steal the good stuff, you just steal the good <laughs> stuff and it's fine. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yes. I uh, also have to mention that one of my favorite bits was you referring to Jay-Z as a star and Beyonce as a galaxy. Is that right? Yeah. That was fun. (laughs) It's so funny because they've just released the, the Barbie trailer this week. And th- th- everyone's been going crazy about the the trailer where they've been putting the female characters where it's like, this Barbie is a da-da-da and saying all the amazing things that she is. And then all the male characters, it just says, he's just Ken next to all of them. And and you saying that about Jay-Z and Beyonce. <laughs> he's just Ken. <laughs> that is very funny. That's, that's great. <laughs> um, but I am, I am really sad that we, we have to wrap this interview up because I honestly could spend hours with your brain. I think you've got the most incredible mind and it's been so wonderful to read your book and to chat to you. So honestly, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, Lydia. This was a hoot. We had lots of fun. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you so much. And listeners, you can order yourselves a copy of Constructing a Nervous System, a memoir which is out now and published by Granta, and I will pop a link to that in the show notes. Margot, as far as I know, you are not very active on social media. Is that correct? Not. I may become more so, but I'm not. You know, I, I do. I go through the motions, but that's... <laughs> well, they can find you, but you may not say anything. So. <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> enigmatic. Enigmatic. The power of the enigmatic. Thank you. <laughs> Next up in our Rathbones Folio special, we are joined by Michelle de Kretzer. Michelle's book, Scary Monsters, was this year's winner of the Rathbones Folio Prize fiction category. Scary Monsters was described by the judges as a sublime novel that slips, fascinates and terrifies at once. De Kretzer's Scary Monsters deserves to be read again and again. Michelle is an Australian writer who was born in Sri Lanka and moved to Australia at the age of 14. As the author of six novels, Michelle is no stranger to winning and being nominated for awards for her work. Her second novel, The Hamilton Case, was winner of the Tasmania Pacific Prize, the Encore Award and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Her 2007 novel, The Lost Dog, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize for Fiction. She has also won the Miles Franklin Award twice and the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction three times, just to name a few. Amongst all of this, Michelle has also worked as an editor for Travel Guide's company Lonely Planet and was a founding editor of the Australian Women's Book Review. I am so thrilled to be joined by Michelle today. So, Michelle, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. No, thanks it's really me. kind of you. Thank you for coming. Now, as this is our Rathbones Filio special, um, we are asking this question to all of this year's winners. Um, how did it feel to be nominated and to win this esteemed accolade? Oh, look, it was absolutely wonderful. I think perhaps more than usually. I mean, it is, it's always lovely to win a prize. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really special about the 
Rathbone's Polio Prize is that it's judged by other writers, you know, so it's called the Writer's Prize. And the judges were really, you know, writers I admired so much. I mean, someone like Alice Smith, I have been reading for years. And so, you know, it was a meaningful honour, which is so important, so important. So it was extra special, really. And then, of course, it's also an international award, so that's always nice. Yeah. Man, amazing. Um, especially with Ali Smith judging. Um, there was a great lineup of judges this year. I am definitely yeah. a fan of Jackie Kay. Jackie, wonderful. And Guy Gunaratna yes. as well. Yes. So three really of judges, you know, how lucky, how yeah. lucky. Um, and your book, Scary Monsters, it's it's got such a, a unique format and we will get into that but it has been it's had similar comparisons to how to be both by ali smith because that has also has quite a unique format in that she plays with with form and um her book i think it had two different printings and one of the printings there was like the historical section at the start and then the other one was something different i mean i've not read it myself but i have seen in um, a number of interviews that it's been compared to that so that must have been really exciting to have her judging as well oh that was perfect um, yeah, I mean, I also read and admired Jackie and Guy, but it was particularly wonderful to ha- win this prize with Ali as a judge because of that book. I mean, all of Alice Smith's books give a writer a sense of possibility, you know, which is a wonderful gift, I think. You read one of her books and you think anything is possible. It, it kind of gives you permission as a writer to do anything. And the important lesson I took away from How to Be Both was the extra layer of meaning you get when the form of the book embodies the the themes of the books, the meaning of the book. Um, so as you said, with, with How to Be Both, that having that double printing, it uh, was really uh, with, you know, historical uh, narrative and a contemporary one, and then just the randomness of which copy you happen to, which printing you happen to pick up in a bookshop was really um, reflective of some of the ideas um, that were being explored in the novel, ideas about chance, ideas about metaphysics of time, for instance, and the layering of experience. Um, So with my book, because it recounted two migrant narratives, I wanted a book, a form that mirrored, embodied the experience of migration in as much as one can do that, you know, in in an object like a book. And so um, you, whichever narrative, the the, the book has not not got um, a back cover, it's got two front covers. See, which um, you can read, you can start at either end, you get to the end of one narrative, have to turn the book upside down if you want to go on and read the other narrative. And the reason for that was the idea that migration upends lives, turns lives upside down. And the two halves of the novel are very disconnected. You know, the story changes radically. One half is set in um, the south of France in the 1980s, the other half in Melbourne in the near future. And so again, the reason for that was that the reader needs to make sense of the story, which is what migrants do have to do when we change countries, especially if we change cultures radically. So, you know, you ask, you find yourself asking questions like, how do I understand this? How is this coherent? How do I make sense of this? So I hope that the reader would experience on a micro level some of that sense of disorientation and questioning 
that migrants experience when they change countries. Um, so that was the that was one of the reasons, an important reason behind the form of the novel, that upside down format. The other reason was that, as you mentioned, this is my sixth novel, and um, progressively in my last couple of novels, at least, I've been thinking about what makes a novel a novel, you know, and wanting to play with this idea. Because all art is serious play, really, isn't it? And I have been wondering how much collective tissue, how much collective tissue can it take out of a novel and still have a novel? So my last novel was five, dis five separate narratives, but there was a character who appeared in each one, sometimes Sunday fleetingly, sometimes the central character, but she did appear in each one. So with this one, I wanted to go that step further and take out, you know, more connections. So that I thought the reader would ask themselves, you know, what makes a novel a novel? Can we, can we have great disparities of plot and character and time and place? And still, is this still a novel? So, I mean, I thought of it as a novel, it was conceived as a whole, but I thought it was useful to, to put those questions out there because when I read a book, a novel, normally it just slips down, you know, I don't really think about what I am reading formally in, um, in terms of genre. And I hope that this book would lead readers to ask the question, well, what is a novel? What makes a novel? You know, there are various thematic resonances between the two parts. And readers kept finding things that I hadn't even realized were in there. They'd say, oh, but you know, there is this in, in one part and it, then it appears in this form in the other part. And I hadn't even realized I put those things in together. But I think it's wonderful that human beings are, you know, absolutely, we are pattern pattern-seeking, pattern-making animals. And so readers were looking for connections and finding connections that I hadn't even seen were there. So that was, you know, that's all been very, um, very lovely and exciting for me. I imagine it is such a, a fascinating book and I was so excited to get to it because I, I don't think I've ever, I mean, like I said, I've not, I've not read How to Be Both by Ellie Smith, but I don't think I've ever come across a book like this before. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask, why did you feel like it was the the right moment to write a book like this? I know it's a big question, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I simply just, you mean in terms of the format, why was it the right moment or the, the yeah. content? Um, the, both, I mean, both. Yeah, the content and, and the format. I guess I, you know, having been a, being a migrant myself, mm -hmm. I was uh, keen to write a novel about migrant experience that used first person because I hadn't done that before. I had written about migrant experiences, but not in the first person. And I thought that would be an interesting um, sort of technical thing to do. Just because, you know, from one novel to the next, you don't want to repeat yourself. <laughs> um, also, there is, I mean, this is sort of ongoing, but there, there is so much um, demonization of migrants and particularly migrants of colour um, in, in the West. Um, and, you know, e even if not demonization, then ambivalence mm -hmm. about you know, our usefulness, um, our desirability, I suppose, as as um, as citizens of our, our new homelands. And of course, you know, Australia famously has very cruel um, border policies concerning um, asylum seekers. So all of that, all of that in the air and 
wanting to to write about that really all those things now you're obviously you've you've said that your novel explores you know the migrant experience and it senses migrant voices and i felt like it was explored in a really powerful way but at times very funny now you migrated yourself from sri lanka to australia at the age of 14 was it and, yeah and i wanted to ask how much of your own experiences fed into these characters um of Lila and Lily? Oh gosh, it's a good question, but hard to answer. I mean, mm -hmm. so Lily is the young woman who is teaching in the south of France in the 1980s, and I did teach in the south of France in the 1980s. So I suppose everything about the setting and um what it was what it meant to teach English in a French high school at that time. Um and what French society was like at that time fed was was directly in a direct memory. But everything that happens to Lily is is made up. And Lily is um I guess she is a much I think she's a smarter and more more politicized and more interesting character than I'm I was at that <laughs> at that age. Um, so, you know, there is overlap and there is no overlap. Um, similarly with Lyle, mm. I guess there was what Lyle has, that he's this middle-aged man trying to keep his head down and pass under the radar in near future Melbourne where, you know, if immigrants do the wrong thing, they can be um deported for instance so i mean the wrong thing in terms of you know what what this this the, the very right-wing government ordains is the wrong thing and i suppose i have that sense especially in australia in the um well really for most of the 20th century i would say oh there being not many immigrants of color it's a very different situation in in britain and so really you didn't want to stand out too much you hoped to pass unnoticed you know, because the kind of attention it could attract would perhaps would quite often be the wrong kind of attention. Mm. Now, I personally felt more connected to to Lily's character. Now, I, I, this could possibly be because she's uh, a young woman and yeah. and I don't have any personal experience um, of being a migrant, but her sort of, I don't know how to describe it, she's she's quite, she doesn't really, <laughs> she's having this, this moment in her life where she kind of doesn't know what to do with herself and I feel like every young woman has has had that yeah. I especially felt that when I graduated from university I was I graduated with a drama and theatre degree and after that I was kind of like I don't know which direction to go in That's and I feel like she she's experiencing that at the same time as yeah. being a migrant so it just adds a, a whole other layer to yeah. sort of uh, moving into that adult part of your life and it just makes it yeah. that much more complicated doesn't it yeah Whereas, absolutely yeah oh sorry go ahead. no no I'm so glad you said that thank you because i mean i did want in the lily part of the story to capture something um i should say that i think the really the lily half is much more realist than the light half which is dystopian and sort of quite um satiric and much more um impressionistic in in a kind of german ex or expressionist i should say german expressionist way of characters and situations being pushed to near caricature in order to capture 
capture something of the sense of the times in which he is living, which are horrible and unbelievable, really incredible. So to capture some of that, just as the German expressionists were trying to show the horror of, you know, Germany in the 20s and 30s. Whereas Lily is much more realistic. And I did want to capture something of that sense of uncertainty of being a young woman at that difficult stage when, you know, study has, has finished and which has provided all this scaffolding, this certainty. And now you have to work out what you're going to do with your life and how you're going to be. And also how important friendships are at that time. Well, at any time, really. But, uh, you know, the intensity of friendships at that time, uh, which I think are quite beautiful, really. And so, you know, Lily's friends with um, a young English woman called um, Minna. And um, they just have joyful times together. I wanted to capture something, you know, the intensity and the joyfulness and the, the wonderful silliness of, of being young, you know, um, the, that freedom to just sort of play, really, whereas Lyle is weighed down by all kinds of responsibilities and affairs. Yeah, and, and Lyle's part of the book reminded me of the book The Good Immigrant by Nikesh Shukla. I don't know if you've come across it before. Um, oh, I haven't. It's, it's it's great. Um, it's a collection of essays um, by various um, actors, writers, creatives that have experience of being an immigrant. And I think there's, there's I read the UK version, but there's also a US version as well. And these essays, they just really look into how disorienting it is being an immigrant and how you feel like you have to present yourself as the good immigrant. And you always yeah, feel like yeah. you're trying to prove yourself. And I definitely got a sense of that with Lyle and the book. I mean, him and his wife, they literally anglicise their names, don't they? And it's, yeah. it, I mean, his his, his job role as well it's it's just really unsettling that's the only way I can think to describe it yes. whereas uh, yeah. with with Lily I mean she describes her experience as there's, there's a moment in the book where she's talking about loneliness and kind of feeling like I think she describes it as the timeless now like living in the timeless now and she doesn't know what to do with herself and she's really feeling this this loneliness so I think definitely for her like her friendships the intensity of her friendships offer up like an escape escape from that loneliness of this experience which I thought was great yeah, thank you so much. Yes. I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it? I think of it now of, you know, you're young and you go off to live on the other side of the world. And this is in a, in a time before, of course, you know, anything like, you know, the internet, email even. So you have letters, you have to rely on letters and international phone calls are incredibly expensive. So you just really, can't, you know, they are for emergencies, basically. So I remember often being on the other side of the world and thinking, no, no one knows where I am. No one, you know, knows what is happening to me. And I wanted to give Lily that sense of, you know, of loneliness, really, of, of, of isolation, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you also for, for mentioning that collection of essays. I'll look out for that. I, I want, I mean, I think the thing with Lyle is that, you know, he has, he's so desperate to be what he thinks of as a good Australian in order to stay safe. And what he and his wife have have done is is absolutely take on these really awful values that are not spoken about in Australia, but that absolutely exist, but that we don't like admitting to, I suppose. You know, we like admitting to, you know, nice, good qualities like mateship, for instance. It's a big Australian thing, you know, mateship, you help your mates. 
But, um, you know, we are encouraged under capitalism to be increasingly ruthless in our individualism. Mm. Um, and that is, you know, it's sort of every person for themselves. And so that, you know, that is actually what Lyle sees of as sort of unspoken values are what actually, you know, run society, not this other kind of, you know, nice discourse of, you know, um, friendship or egalitarianism. You know, wealth is every Everything, consumption is everything, property is everything. You know, you have to accumulate as much property as possible at whatever cost. And so I think Lyle and his wife Chanel really suss out the unspoken determinants of, of contemporary Australia, the, the, the hidden, unpleasant side of life under neoliberalism. Mm. Yeah, it creates quite a, a very jarring sense of identity that they're experiencing because they're trying to slip into these values and they're, they're losing their authentic self, essentially, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're not encouraged to look back, you know, mm. they're encouraged to remake themselves you know, in Australia and to, you know, to be, be the good migrants. Now, as we've said, uh, Lily's part of the novel is set in the 80s and and mm. Lyle's is is sort of a dystopia near future, um, but it feels very frighteningly close and relevant. <laughs> um, and there is, I, well, I wanted to know, was there a particular moment in time or a particular issue in time that you wanted to capture with these two time periods? Well, I one thing I was thinking of was that so Lily's story, I'm not giving anything away really, ends in May 1981 when her time in France comes to an end. And what happened in May 1981 in France was the election of François Mitterrand's socialist government. This was the first election left-wing government to be elected since before the war in France. So it was an extraordinary moment. The ESA, you know, it was over 40 years it had taken. Conservative governments had been in power all the way through. And there was, Thatcher had been recently elected in Britain, yeah. Reagan in the US. So fairly, fairly grim outlook with both those people, those, those leaders. And then along came France and elects you know, it seems to well, what's the trend? Elects, you know, a left-wing socialist government, and there was such rejoicing, such rejoicing in the streets. I remember that so vividly. And I suppose I wanted to, and then you know, in in Lyle's uh, part of the story, it's it's you know, we're back to very frightening times uh, under a very right-wing government, and I wanted to remind people that you know, there is there is the power ballot box because in Australia we are obviously we, we do have free elections and that you know things can change for the better we can we can choose to live differently uh, we don't have to end up with the future that Lyle has ended up with one of the big things of course is that you know the, the sort of natural world is in a catastrophic state in Lyle's section of the book and you know it is possible to vote for governments that will have a more responsible attitude to all of those things so so I guess that was the point I wanted to make with those two different times. Can we just borrow you in the UK so that you can speak to everybody? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought because... the change is coming there. I oh, I'm, 
I really hope that we can escape this conservative government um, because they don't care about the arts and it's, it's very distressing. They don't care about and it, no, rich, basically. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And me and Lydia have spoken before on the podcast about uh, how we're working class. So we've certainly seen over the years yeah. how horrendous this government has been to anybody that, I mean, there's a, the, the, I, I can't even get into it because I'll get wrapped yeah, up. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, it's it's important. The ballot box is important. <laughs> people need to be yeah, elected in the right people. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we have so Australians which are in the Labour government last year. And we've actually now got because you know Australia has state and federal system, we've actually got Labour governments throughout mainland Australia. Mm-hmm. Only out of Tasmania is holding out with her with a conservative government. Look, the Labour Party has a long way to go. I think it's basically a centrist party. Mm-hmm. It certainly uh, continues to um, protect its rich donors. And I think they could be doing a lot more about climate change than they are. However, however, they are definitely an improvement on what came before. I, so that's not a very high bar to, to clear, <laughs> but we are grateful for it. Believe me. Yeah. We really are. We really, really are. So, you know, things, things have to go. We ha- it, it, Hope is necessary. You know, hope mm-hmm. is necessary. The hope that, that, that it is possible. The hope of a better life. Um, people can't love, can't live without that hope. You know, that's yeah. what, what ends people, really. Yeah. You have to believe in the possibility of of change for the better. Now, lastly, I wanted to ask you very quickly, I've managed to slip this in. Lily is aspires to be like Simone de Beauvoir. Why her in particular? Are you a fan? Oh, yes, I am. And because I guess back in the 1981, I mean, one of the books, two, two books had had a huge impact on young women. Uh, one was, well, many, you know, there was also Germaine Greer, for instance, female eunuch. But because Lily has come out of French studies, she's very influenced by two books that were very widely read at the time. And one was The Second Sex, mm-hmm. de Beauvoir's book about um, the history of women basically. And the other was her autobiography and particularly the first volume of memoirs of a dutiful daughter. Those books were devoured by women of my generation. You know, they really were. And so um, de Beauvoir at that time was a, was an absolutely sort of um, heroic figure. I don't know who would be comparable. I mean, maybe Judith Butler for for uh, young women today or Greta Thunberg for the climate movement. Mm. You know, she she really was this, I don't know, someone who was greatly, greatly admired and, and revered, really, for the unconventionality of her life as much as for her books because, you know, she, in in the 1920s, she and Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, her lifelong sort of partner, although they both had, you know, numerous other, you know, lovers, they made a pact that they wouldn't get, they decided not to get married, but just, you know, to to live together, which was, you know, really quite something for the times. Mm. And this marriage that wasn't a marriage, that was this pact that accommodated other people, you know, it was really something quite quite special, quite un- very, very unconventional, very much flying in the face of uh, French bourgeois respectability. They both came from very middle-class families and they both rejected the roles set out for them. And of course, for de Beauvoir, even more courage needed because for a woman to reject that ro- that role 
was really, you know, you know, men were allowed to do what they wanted as long as they didn't, you know, make too much public display of it. But for a woman to do that, that stuff was absolutely shocking, really. <laughs> um, and of course, she was so smart, you know, she, yeah. she was incredibly brilliant. So this this woman who, um, you know, just seemed to embody, you know, intelligence and unconventionality and sexiness and all, all of it, really. Listeners, if you are also looking for a writer that embodies intelligence, <laughs> I would highly recommend picking up a copy of Scary Monsters. I will be including a link to that in the show notes. Now, I try not to recommend people buying from Amazon, but I had a look yesterday and there are only nine copies at the moment of your book available at the moment on Amazon because they're clearly flying off the shelves. So <laughs> get your copies. Right. And am I right, Michelle, in thinking that you are not on social media? No, not really. No. Okay. No. Normally we we ask our listeners. Well, I Ed. was on Instagram and then I got locked out of my account because I didn't give them my birthday or something. I don't know. I was about to go away on holiday and they were asking for my birthday and I thought, oh, no, this is surveillance. I'm not doing this. <laughs> I should have given them a false date. Of course, how stupid was that? <laughs> uh, and then and I was locked out. So there you go. I am. So therefore, I thought, well, I. <laughs> well our listeners can find you through your work they've got lots of of your books to explore if they enjoy scary monsters which i don't see how anybody wouldn't it's a a brilliant book it's so powerful and so funny and just uh, yeah it's just such a an excellent portrayal of the migrant experience and it's a really important read so i highly recommend it to all of our listeners and um, michelle thank you so much for joining me today and oh no it's been so Hannah, for having me on the on the podcast. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. Finally, to round off our reference folio special, we have the incredibly talented Victoria Aduque Bully, who is the winner of the 2023 reference folio prize in the poetry category for her groundbreaking collection, Quiet. On Quiet, the judges said, impresses with its strength and power, its ingenious investigation of inner life, the tensions and surprises within. The book's quiet balance shook us to the core. Victoria is a poet, writer, artist and filmmaker of Ghanaian heritage. An alumna of the Barbican Young Poets, she's a recipient of an Eric Gregory Award and has held residencies in the US, Brazil and the V&A Museum in London. In 2017, her debut pamphlet, Girl B, was published by the African Poetry Book Fund. She is the recipient of a Techne Scholarship for Doctoral Research in Creative Writing at Royal Holloway, University of London. Quiet is her debut full-length collection, and we are so pleased to have Victoria on the podcast today. The first poet we've had on, so Victoria, welcome to Proud Bookends. Thank you so much. I'm really honoured to be the first poet. That's yeah, your collection was honestly amazing, and I listened to a podcast that you did earlier. Um, I think it was the Book Rising podcast, and you were talking about how it's it's not often that you meet people that are very into poetry. Um, 
Um, and I think you were talking about you'd got into a taxi and the driver was like the first <laughs> the first driver that you'd spoken to that actually was interested in poetry. And I don't have Lydia, uh, my co-host, with me today, but she is a poetry fan and I am just totally new to this world. So this was an absolute joy to like read. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. No, it really is true. I don't take it for granted at all when I meet someone who is a fan of poetry. I think it can feel like, especially in this country, it can feel like poetry is a very niche thing that that is kind of limited to a few like canonical, very well-known sort of like names like Wordsworth or like Shakespeare and mm-hmm. like sonnets and things like that. But but yeah, it's amazing when you go out and you do actually meet more people who who love it. Yeah, I never take it for granted. We have been starting our conversations with the winners of the Rutherford's Bullier Prize by asking, we've been asking everyone the same question, which is what was your experience like winning this esteemed accolade? I think the best thing about it was um, the judging panel. I think from the minute that they announced the shortlist, there was a um, shortlist announcement event that a couple of us authors were at and, you know, meeting Jackie Kay, meeting Ali Smith, meeting Guy Gunaratna. They were all just such avid fans, I felt, of the books. And so that really set everything off on a really wonderful path because when you feel that the judges are really on your side, regardless of whether or not you think you're going to win, that's just an incredible feeling. Like they, it just seemed that they knew mm-hmm. the book really well, each of them individually. And so I guess to win it is just, it just doubles down on that sense that it's possible to write a book that you write very much for your own um, sense of well being and it goes out into the world and is read by authors who you really admire and mm-hmm. they read it with such intimacy so to win just doubles down on that sense of wonder and gratitude absolutely and all three of them are powerhouse writers i love jackie Kay. i went to an event that she did with douglas stewart in manchester i think it was last year and just like being in her presence (laughs) she's just amazing so yeah huge congratulations to you because this is just amazing and for your debut as well like this is huge (laughs) thank you thank you so before we get into quiet i would love to give our listeners a taste of quiet so would you mind reading something from the collection Sure. Yeah, I um I often just read the first poem from the book because I think the way I structured the book was thinking in terms of almost like the architecture of a house. And so there are like doors and different rooms and then there's a garden at the end. But I also kind of wanted to be a bit tongue in cheek and to, you know, knowing that the book is called Quiet, I wanted to sort of open in a way that's actually not quiet, but contain the word. So the first poem is called Declaration. Declaration. If sickness begins in the gut, if I live in the belly of the beast, if here at the heart of empire, if careful in the house of the host, if quiet at the heart of the host, if here at the home of empire, If I live in the belly of the beast, let me beget sickness in its gut. Thank you. 
Thank you. That was beautiful. I was so in awe of, of your writing and your style. It's it's just different to anything I've read before. I mean, obviously, like I said, I'm not, I don't normally gravitate towards poetry. And I think now like you've totally, you totally changed me. And I feel like I'm like ready for, for the world of poetry now. Before I get into style, I need to ask about the inspiration for Quiet and how, how it began. What were the, the first ideas that you had for Quiet? how it sort of became a collection. Did you know that you were starting as a collection or was it one poem that then became, yeah, how did it form? Yeah, it's interesting really because I think it formed over many years, but then there are a few things that kind of set it into motion in a nice way. So I am sort of like at the tail end right now of completing a PhD in creative writing at Royal Holloway. And when I began that, because basically to do this PhD, you are writing a book of poetry, but you're also writing a thesis and they're kind of meant to be in conversation. And when I began it, I was thinking about language and how it fragments and splinters and how ultimately it kind of fails a lot of the time. And there are things that you can attempt to say, but it's only ever approximate. And somewhere along the line, I was introduced to a fantastic thinker and artist, um, Lene Denise, who is also a DJ and she's a DJ <laughs> And I remember talking to her at an event at the ICA in London and she mentioned this book to me called The Sovereignty of Quiet by another scholar called Kevin Quashi, who's based in the US. And when I read this book, I just, I thought, gosh, like this is it. This isn't just it in terms of what I've been trying to articulate about language and the things that can't really be said and don't even need to be said, but also just thinking about quiet as a, as a way of being and a way that... And as black writers and black readers, like there's a level of life that doesn't get seen to because it's so below the register that we're used to hearing. Yeah. Uh, so that book for me is such a big deal. And it's why, you know, at the beginning of the book, there's a quote from Kevin Quashi. And again, in the acknowledgements, I'm saying to Kevin, who I haven't yet to meet, but we have been in touch. I'm saying to him, you know, this book is also for you. So, so that really solidified the idea. And I really felt like not only is it key to the ethos of the ideas, that are going on in the book but also the kind of way of moving through the world that I've been quite familiar with feels encompassed in in the title quiet and the kind of um, work that Kevin has been doing around thinking in that way. It's, it's so interesting and it's so exciting to be able to talk to you because I feel like I've just been like curled up for the last few nights with your book and that, that sounds so creepy <laughs> but I really feel like I've been like absorbed in this world that you've created and it's yeah it's, it's just totally I, I feel like transformed because like I said like I'm just I I don't read poetry so to have been so absorbed by this it's it's just been amazing and I wanted to speak actually about Kevin Closhy amongst uh, the other writers you preface each section with um, an epigraph and you have words from Kevin Closhy and Tony Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston what was it about these quotes that resonated with you um, in particular for this collection yeah like I really wanted to like I really believe that even if you have this incredible novel idea or poetry book idea you're not the only person to have thought these thoughts and mm -hmm. I think often there can be a sense of not wanting to seem like one's work has derived from another person's work but I just don't really relate to that I really feel that my experience as a reader and as a writer is so rooted in even just the smallest things 
things I've read, like the smallest sentences, the smallest sort of utterances or quotations that have just stayed with me for a long time. And these just happen to be some of them. And I wanted to include them because I feel that even if there's something I haven't said explicitly in the poetry book, in my own words, Toni Morrison has already said, girl, I got my mind and what goes on in it, which is to say I got me, which is from her book Sula. Or, you know, Zora Neale Hurston has already said, you know, there's a basin in the mind where words float around on thought and thought on sound and sight, like this sort of like really um, numinous and like fluid space that exists within the self. Um, or there's Imani Perry at the back who says, um, you never tell all the secrets when you're trying to get free. And so for me, the, the inclusion of those quotations at the beginning of each section, they say something about the section, but they also say something about the themes of the book. They also, you know, that all of them pretty much, but for Kevin Quashie, they're all black women. They are all also African-Americans. That's the one thing I'm like, ah, oh, okay, if I were to do this book again, I might, there may be some inclusions that I would swap just to mm -hmm. kind of not put it so heavy on the sort of other yeah. side of Atlantic, but, um, but yeah, they're kind of like signposts, but also just thank yous as well. Thank mm -hmm. yous for saying these things and making it apparent to me that I'm not thinking alone. I'm thinking within a lineage. Yeah. I always find it so interesting to hear writers talk about the other writers that have inspired them. And I think like you said, you know, there are people that have had your thoughts before and I was, I think I was particularly struck by the quote you used, um, which was spoken by Evidence Joel, is it? In an interview on Sky News that was on the disappearance of her son. And I didn't realise that's what that quote was from when I first read it. And then when I got to the end um, and read uh, your notes on that poem, um, I went back and reread it. And it just sort of gave a whole other layer to that poem and it made it all the more powerful and it was a, like it was an even more powerful read experience because that I am really sorry if you don't like people dog-earing pages but I I, love that. I, love <laughs> I am dog-earing <laughs> And How Not to Disappear was one of the ones that I dogged because it, it just really struck me. And I interpreted How Not to Disappear at first. I was reading it from the perspective of, of a woman and, you know, the feelings that I've had walking home at night and, you know, the, the fear that instills the woman and the things that happen to women. But then actually going back and reading it and, and reading it with that quote from Evidence Joel, it added a whole other layer to actually the dangers of like navigating the world as a black person and it, yeah, there's just so many different ways that that poem could be interpreted and I think that's the, the same thing goes for, for a lot of your collection there are many ways that these things can be interpreted but what did you want to capture with How Not to Disappear because obviously there's a way I've interpreted it but what were the feelings that you wanted to capture? I mean I think you've you've already you've already kind of covered it but just a real sense of because I think it was I can't quite remember but I think when this happened it had when I wrote the poem actually that that's the better way to think about it. So when I wrote the poem, it was in the wake of everything that had happened with Sarah Everard mm. um, and how big that was. And I don't know, I think I often think about even just being a kid 
and when, for example, Madeleine McCann went missing. Yeah. And I was really young when that happened. And I just, it, this sounds really stupid, but there was a moment when I realised that other people are missing, like mm. other people are missing. Like, there was a moment mm. when I realised she was not the only child to go missing ever. Mm. Yeah. I just, I just couldn't believe that. Like, I just couldn't believe, like, because, you know, walking around London, for example, every now and then you'll see like a poster about missing someone who's missing. Mm you know, missing people and call this number. And I just thought, oh my goodness, it's like there's so many missing people. And so there's mm-hmm. a kind of, there's a kind of hierarchy to who gets to be sort of publicized as being missing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And including that quote as this sort of preface to the poem, it really, that quote really highlights to me that sense of not just the grief of the mother, but the sense of, okay, yeah, there are other people who go missing, but also even in the call for help, the response to that call is so devastating. That mm-hmm. sense, like, how could you possibly say that to someone? Yeah, yeah. You know? um, so yeah, absolutely. The sense in the poem is that, you know, there are so many people, there's so many people who've gone missing and so many of those who are missing and are black, for example, whether they're male or female, um, they don't receive the kind of care or concern. And even if there are sort of mysterious circumstances, there's a sense in which, oh, it's not suspicious. It's not suspicious. And sometimes I think, you know, God forbid I ever went missing. I'm sure someone could pick up a scrap of a poem somewhere and think, oh, you know, it's not suspicious. She was having a bad, <laughs> she was having a hard time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I just think that's really... And, and nobody I know would have any power over that. Mm-hmm. Who loves me would be able to say, no, that's not true. Like, yeah. And have something done about it. So I just, I found that quite terrifying. Um, and so the concept of how not to disappear kind of came from that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so, that's so powerful the way that you've put that. And it is, it is frightening. And that, that poem in particular, I think, I mean, I've folded down so many pages. I think that might have been, I don't want to say which is my favorite now because now I'm flicking through and going, no, this one was, no, this one was. <laughs> that was, that was the one that like, I think moved me the most. Now I touched it earlier but obviously um i really loved the way that you experiment with with style and with form and i think you know there there are experimental um, poems in here and there are prose style poems some of them feel quite lyrical and like they're to a beat Uh, some of them feel like quite stream of consciousness but mostly like it feels like your work doesn't really have like you don't give yourself any restrictions that doesn't seem to be any rules or kind of limits what inspires your style and and where how did you find it I think a big part of what inspires me to write in a kind of um without a kind of I'm looking for the right word but sort of strictness or a sense of uh oh I must stick with this way of writing or this arrangement of words Mm -hmm. I think what um inspires that is very much about sound and image because and I don't have a problem with anybody who writes just in sonnets or just some of my favorite poets you know you turn the page the poem looks the same like a block of text a block of text mm-hmm. a block of text and I have no issue with that whatsoever it's just that I think in this book I was trying to capture so many of the different ways that my brain works mm-hmm. and sometimes my brain just works in more visual ways than just a block of text and sometimes it works in ways where I thinking about how can I put this on the page the way it sounds in my head Mm -hmm. so sometimes for me the positioning of a word on the page really is about taking a breath and then saying the word Mm -hmm. rather than just you know leading from one line onto the next and I guess at other times I really want the book to be a visual object that someone can pick up and think 
what does the image say like what what does it how does it feel to look so yeah yeah that would be my answer i think i think one of um i'm trying to find which one it is oh there we go lost belonging the the way you've structured that it's like a i don't know how to describe it without saying it looks like a hill like yeah (laughs) like something going uphill that's how it's kept the words are kind of structured and then um i think my favorite in terms of style was noise but mm. there's the brackets i don't know what the brackets stand for do you, mm. do you do you do you call the title noise so that poem where is it so that's an interesting one because i really it that's probably the most experimental one in the book only because when i read it i say white noise but oh, okay. i can sort of use the brackets to kind of use the whiteness of the page mm. so it's kind of um it, it's it's experimental in the sense that i don't know I know that it might not be read the same way by everyone. So that, to me, is part of it. But yeah, I was interested in redaction, like leaving words out. I was interested in what it would look like with all of these gaps that are sort of like like holes in the page. And also, again, like the whiteness of the page and then making commentary about sort of like the ubiquitousness of this page that is white, that, you know, the, the very thing that I'm writing on feels like it is... A, a white western institution that you know this this book you know the concept of it the way that it's arranged and it's like i was trying to bring that into the poem yeah totally i am i also thought black noise was great as well i uh i really enjoy that as a visual Uh, me and me and lydia mention this far too often on the podcast but we are both actors um so I really enjoyed like this is probably going to make me sound horrendous but I really enjoyed like reading your words out loud and uh, not just kind of sat reading them in my head I was like wanting to perform them like I just think there's there's so much in here that you could get lost with and play with and I, I just love that how do you feel kind of having to do readings of your poems do you enjoy it or you know what's what's that like I mean it's really it means a lot to me that you know yourself and Lydia are both actors because I really I really for the longest time wanted to be an actress for the longest time Uh, you know I would still do it if you know if someone said oh do you want to be in this thing and and I liked the idea I was like yeah I'll do it but to get to the point there is a way in which these poems are they are vocal like they are Mm sound of the language they are about emotion they are about um a kind of landscape that is not two-dimensional it's a three-dimensional thing and so when I read them I really try to take my time I really try to not read them the same way I read them last time because that's how it is you know all the time I I really enjoy doing readings because for me it's not I wouldn't say it's performance but it kind of isn't far from what I studied for so long thinking about about presence what people mean talk about presence and what I understand it to to mean is just a certain kind of aliveness that is different today than it was yesterday so bringing my day with me has done more for my readings than saying oh I'm switching this on now Mm-hmm. I'm not walking onto stage and switching something on, but I'm more looking at the, I'm probably looking at the poem as an actor might and thinking, how does this feel right now? Not what does it mean, but how does it feel right now? And sort of bringing oh, that. I love that. It means that your work is always evolving and growing with you. And I think there's something really beautiful in that. Oh my goodness, your mind. <laughs> I have just noticed the time and I am really sad because um, I have loved talking to you and and getting more more of your 
words and thoughts and you are I mean you, you can tell from reading this this incredible collection you know how talented you are how amazing your brain is <laughs> if I could just borrow it that would be great but I would love to know before we let you go uh, before I let you go I'm used to doing this all idea <laughs> um, what is next for you um I am so I'm trying to finish a novel right now and it you know I'm kind of like halfway there and it's just one of those things that I just really need to do like I said to my agent Emma that you know I'm doing this for me like I have to finish it because if I don't finish it I'm just never gonna it will just live inside of me Mm -hmm. and it won't feel good um so right now the challenge is to finish a novel um also finish the PhD because I still have to do this sort of like theory side (laughs) the poetry um and yeah I'm just trying to sort of enjoy all of this it's like so nice having a book out there like I just can't believe people I just can't believe people are reading it I just can't oh I can I can fully believe that people are reading this it's so good and yeah just casually doing a PhD writing a novel winning awards for this like (laughs) I'm just really really glad that your talent is being recognized and that I've had the opportunity to read your work and had the opportunity to to chat to you and I am very excited to hear that you've got a novel coming out we must have you back on the podcast once your novel is out there in the world because I have a feeling I'll have many more questions for you Anna thank you no this has been really lovely I really appreciate it Oh, no, thank you so much. Is there anywhere that our listeners can find you on social media? Yes, um, I, I'm i not super active, but I am on Instagram. So it's just my name, Victoria Adequabile. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm also mostly retweeting, but yeah. <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, yeah. Amazing. I will link that in the show notes. And I will also, listeners, be linking a bookshop link for uh, Victoria's collection Quiet which is published by Faber and out now and I would highly recommend um, that you pick up a copy Victoria thank you so much for joining me today this has been amazing thank you you so much it's been a pleasure Thank you so much, Bookends, to listening to our 2023 Rathbones Folio Prize special episode it was an absolute honour to chat to all three of this year's winners and we honestly cannot recommend their books enough. If you have enjoyed these conversations and would like to purchase their books, we have popped links in the show notes for all three books. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. You can follow us at Pair of Pod on Instagram or at Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And until next time, happy reading and thanks for listening. Bye.